0: Welcome to Journaling with Nature, the podcast for those who want to turn curiosity into wonder, a pencil sketch into a rabbit hole of discovery, a moment of stillness into a life full of joy. I'm your host, Bethan Burton. Let's open the pages of our nature journals and explore this world together. Hello, this is episode 60. I don't know why, but when the episodes come up to these round numbers, it feels like an extra special milestone. I can't believe that we're at 60 episodes already, and I also can't believe how lucky I am to have these conversations with people all over the world. People who share a love of nature and creativity, people who have the most inspiring stories, and people who genuinely become friends. This week, I spoke with someone in Germany and someone in Italy. Next week, it will be Alaska and Spain. I'm incredibly grateful for this chance and for you, the listener who's here with us to share in these stories. Today, I'm excited to share with you an interview with Miriam Morrill. Miriam is a fire management specialist who uses nature journaling as a way of communicating about fire. With a background in art, Miriam found nature journaling and then quickly realized that it could be a powerful tool for promoting place-based fire education and encouraging people to get familiar with their surroundings and to know more about the fire environment they live in. This is important work. There's been a history of fire suppression in many places, including California, where Miriam lives, and Australia, where I live. And this has caused a lot of problems. It has increased the fuel load and led to catastrophic bushfires. Climate change is going to also increase bushfire risk and it's more important than ever that we change the way we manage fire as well as the level of awareness that we have of our fire environment. Miriam promotes year-round environmental observations so that we can be aware and alert to changes and make better decisions about what to do next. In our conversation, she talks all about how we can become familiar with our environment before, during, and after fire, and how nature journaling is the perfect tool for this. Let's listen. Miriam, thank you so much for being here with me. This is a very important subject, very close to me and my life, and I'm especially excited to dig into this subject with you. So thanks for being here. Oh, I'm
1: super excited to talk with you.
0: <laughs> so always, as you know, I go back in people's history just to sort of set the scene, and I wonder about how this all began for you. Did you have the observa- these observations of nature and ecology in your early life?
1: Yeah, I grew up in pretty remote rural areas of Northern California, up in the kind of foothill canyon areas. Um, Actually, I don't know if you remember the 2018 campfire that burned Mm. um, the town of Paradise. I grew up in a lot of that footprint of that area in there. And so, um, yes, had a lot of nature, and both of my parents were very um, outdoorsy. My dad was a boy scout and um, Scoutmaster as an adult. Uh, and my mom, actually very adventurous, she, when she was young, um, worked at the Bonanza Ranch. That was the old Western TV series. They actually what? had a real <laughs> r- ranch. And she would take people out on trail rides and hunters out with pack mules and even ride by herself. Um, with her dog for a week or two, she made her own saddle from, you know, um, butchering a goat, skinning it, tanning the hide, carving the frames. She was, um, <laughs> um, very kind of old school. So, <laughs> um, wow. yeah, so I, you know, we had horses growing up and, um, a lot of outdoor activities. So, um, yeah. And, um,
0: it's in your blood.
1: <laughs> it is. And I also, um. I guess sort of that there was a lot of positive and there was some negative. Um, my parents, uh, my dad, managed a group home for um, severely emotionally disturbed boys, mm-hmm. and so there was a lot of um, trauma and a lot of violence growing up. But having nature around me was sort of my refuge. It's I spent so much time um, out in the woods. I felt safe and um, had a lot of forts and hideaways and um, even. Uh, it seems kind of i'll seem kind of crazy but i because i didn't really feel comfortable showing my vulnerability at home as much i liked to go out in the woods and that would be my place to cry or my place to mm. kind of let my guard down and so i had favorite trees or kind of my little nature neighborhoods where i would go around and hang out and sort of um just kind of feel like i could let my guard down and um sort of talk with the trees if you will so um yeah so I just kind of feel for me it's where I feel very connected and um very alive and uh I think I'll always have that deep in my blood
0: yeah that's a powerful thing nature as a refuge nature as a safe place that's that's a that's a deep story yeah
1: (laughs) um I was going to mention that I, you know, I know nature has its dangers and I learned that very young. And I think that was really amazing to not have an illusion of that. It is just, you know, this fantasy safe, you know, hobbits and fairies. And, you know, I knew there were dangers, but I knew, um, what to do. I recognized the signs. And so, um, it was sort of wise but also a place to be very free. So I just thought I'd add that, but it wasn't thinking that nature had no risks. I was very aware of that.
0: That's so interesting because of where you developed too. So you studied environmental biology and zoology at university, and then you came to spend your career studying fire, which is uh, has its own risks, of course, and yet can be beautiful in its own way. And I wonder how, how this happened, how you came to focus your life and work on fire. Yeah. So,
1: um, I wasn't actually interested in fire to begin with. I wanted to be a wildlife biologist and, um, I I kind of it was a little bit of a longer route since I had I had been a runaway and gotten married young and then divorced and kind of started my life over. And so in my mid 20s, I wanted to go to college. And um, I was kind of insecure and not sure what I had the intellect or capability to do. But I just I knew I wanted to work in the field. And um, I had a counselor that just talked me into just keep trying, just keep doing it and seeing how far you can go. And so I did, you know, start in a seasonal job while I was going to college um, on a timber crew for the forest service where you do some forestry kind of work. And at that point I got my firefighter qualifications, but I had always had in mind, I wanted to be a wildlife biologist, but I was trying to get all these skills and kind of just let the currents take me where they were going to take me. And, um, And I loved all the adventures and the work and the mix of things that I did. But um, later I had met my husband, not that much later, and he had always wanted to be a firefighter from a very young age. He loves fire and his whole career has been fire. And I think first connecting with him while I was early in college and early in my career, gave me that connection, that camaraderie, um, all the friends that are in fire. And even as a biologist, I was always every season going out and helping fighting fire. I would go and fill in on an engine crew or a hand crew. And um, so I, I was familiar with it. I was doing it, but it wasn't my day-to-day job until quite a few years later, um, moving up in my career, I started to notice that the jobs that paid more put you behind a desk (laughs) and as a yeah as a biologist it was uh, I was getting tired of just writing reports and um being behind a desk and had found out about some positions that were available where I could be um Still getting paid about the same, but doing more with the field. And so that's there was a fire position that was looking for somebody with an environmental background that could do um, that could understand environmental compliance issues that could work with the public and people um, to communicate about a mix of environmental environmental impacts related to fire. And so that's kind of how I went in in sort of a lateral way from being a biologist mm-hmm. into fire was this kind of special niche of like, oh, okay, you know, there's new funding, there's new programs to work with communities, to become fire ready, to plan for fire. And um they were kind of trying to figure out who is a good person for that kind of job. And so that's how I started. And I felt like there was a really interesting niche for me that I got to be use all my background as a biologist, but also my experience in fire and working with the public, my communication skills helped with that. So, um, yeah, I kind of felt like I was pulled into fire more than, um, that was my career goal. And then just by these, always taking these different new challenges, and new experiences, um, kind of just like I'd usually be in a new position that hadn't been there before and, you know, would kind of try it out and design that program and kind of keep kind of this interesting diverting trail that was uh, generally in the fire world, but um, kind of the larger planning communication as well.
0: Mm. Well, Wow. And so to understand what's happening in the current day, it's really important to think about the history of fire. And I think the histories of Australia and the US, California are very similar. So indigenous custodians of the land here and where you are had an incredibly intricate knowledge of fire and a profound relationship with fire and fire management And then after colonization, these practices were forbidden and excluded from the landscape. And very quickly, the landscape started to change. And I wonder if you could talk a little about this history of how fire exclusion has changed the landscape where you live. Oh,
1: yes, that's, um, you must have read something I'd been doing in the writing about in the past, because to me, that's this is where nature journaling and things have really come into play. Um, It's like an answer to some of the issues that have come about because of fire exclusion. Um, You know, here in the West, and I'm sure other places we've had, um, not only were Indigenous peoples not allowed to do their traditional burning practices, so it kind of changed the landscape because of that management wasn't there anymore. But we've There was a lot of forestry and a lot of kind of this monoculture of of forests instead of all the, the diversity, the biodiversity you might see when you had more fire. And because that was a commodity, you don't want fire in there. You assume it's bad. And so for the longest time our, you know, fire regulations were to put a fire out very quickly. Even if it could have been really good for the for the area, the the rules have been put the fire out. And so we've had a hundred years or so of putting every fire out as soon as possible. And during that time, the conditions keep the forests keep getting heavier and thicker and more built up. And then more and more people continue to move into these areas thinking it's this, you know, wonderful, thick, lush forest. And now we're sort of seeing that, uh, we've reached almost a tipping point of that we have to have fire in these ecosystems and without it, we have these more catastrophic severe fires. So I strongly feel like fire exclusion has got us into such a bad place. And I am interested in this idea that not only was fire excluded from the landscape, it was excluded from our lives and our way of, of knowing a place. Our sense of a place doesn't have fire. And so many places fire does belong there. And so how do we now get this sense of place that includes fire? And it's going to be a slong, uh, this longer process, but something like nature journaling, where you can learn about the fire environment. Even before fire is there, you can, like like me, you would be able to walk around and see and know what fire might do in that place and have this deeper sense of of what it's like and what to expect so i feel like oh my gosh what a great tool to try and start reintroducing people in a kind of this slower way to understanding fire by looking at the fire environment through journaling
0: yes Ah. Uh... This is amazing. So I'd love for you to tell the story because it's quite cute about how you came to nature journaling. And so you were using visual arts and graphics to communicate about fire for years before you came to nature journaling. And I'd love to hear the story of how you found nature journaling, and then about how it's deepened what you were already doing with other methods of visual communication.
1: Yes. So uh, about five years ago, my husband and I started talking more seriously about retirement. And, uh, you know, we always knew it was somewhere off in the distance and you're getting older. And we realized we didn't want the house. We didn't want all the stuff. We wanted to be in nature and more mobile. Mm -hmm. And... I being an i had always kind of done artwork as a hobby and had a big art room and a big art table and and all this stuff, realized, oh my gosh, you know, we're planning to sell our house and live in a in a trailer in an RV, and there's no room for all of this. So what <laughs> am I going to do? I don't know what I'm gonna do. And so I just started exploring on the internet, like all these, you know, on the move, mobile kind of creative arts, and and I <laughs> came across Jack, you know, John Muir Laws, his um, website and his book and the Facebook group. And it was like, oh, perfect. This, this is, this is perfect. This This is is kind of like on the move. (laughs) This is it. And I, I didn't realize I had actually been introduced to nature journaling like 20 years ago. At, I was at a national outdoor interpreters conference and took one of those pre-workshops and they had a nature journaling workshop and I didn't remember that I took this. Yeah. And I was going through, as I'm trying to think smaller, I'm going through all my art stuff and I find this little small notepad that I go, oh, that's perfect. And I flip through it and I'm like, what? I, I was nature journaling. What is this? And I'm like, <sighs> oh my gosh, I remember that I was at a workshop and I hated it. <laughs> I did not like it at the time because I was new in my kind of newer in my career and I was not very confident and artwork was really the only thing I ever really felt very Mm -hmm. confident about and so trying to draw out there I was just had these terrible drawings and I'm looking at it going "Uh uh-uh there's no way I can like accept what I'm doing here, even though I like, (laughs) I love nature, but I just emotionally could not grapple. And I just didn't get, it's not, this is not art. This is something else, but I didn't get it. I just thought it was like a, you know, fun, do art in nature. And so I hated it because I thought, nope, my artwork is good. I'm not going to do that. And I'll do my nature and I'll do my art. They'll be separate. And then, you know, years later, I start to get it finally like oh, I'm in my 50s <laughs> and like now i understand you know this is a learning tool and certainly it can help you do better art and you can create art through it it's it's so changed my life as yeah. it was when i started doing it i had like a, a area i would walk my dog every day and you know through this nice little river area and after I started journaling, I started seeing things I never saw in like the four years of walking the tr- this trail. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm a biologist. You know, I know how to ID trees and birds. And yeah. how is it I missed this giant mulberry tree? Or how is it I haven't seen these things? And so I was like, felt like this new buzz, like I'm taking some kind of magic pills that <laughs> just got me awake. And, uh, And that was right around when I started really getting it that some of the really significant fires in California were happening. And I was working in a, um, a federal agency, but at the state level, the way they're broken out in management units. And I was managing the fire prevention, fire mitigation, fire investigations and trespass programs. And so I'm doing a lot of policy and budget but also kind of trying to help drive directions to the field on things we should do. And so after experiencing nature journaling for myself, I thought, Oh, if I would want to just like drop all the other programs and just do this, I think it would be so important. Um, people were not getting it. Um, but they did let me do a pilot project where I, um, partnered with John Muir Laws, and um, Robin Carlson, and um, a number of other nature journalers came with me. Um, and we partnered with the, the Nature Conservancy's National Fire Learning Network, and the Klamath Watershed Partnership, and the Karuk tribe up in far Northern California, and nature journaled a prescribed fire. So that was while yeah. I was still in my job was a way to pilot Uh, this nature journaling and fire and it was a big hit
0: Tell me about that Tell me about what happened when all these nature journalers were there watching, learning, journaling together Yeah,
1: so It was funny. I'm I'm big into planning, so I had all these plans and all these exercises. And Robin and I had been like brainstorming it for quite a while, and then we had gotten Jack and other people involved. But so I had like a tight agenda and all these things. And then you get there, and with fire, there could be a time where no, we can't burn right now, or we're gonna burn, but you weren't expecting it. So I kind of threw the whole agenda out, and um, we just kind of went with it in any opportunity to not be in the way of the fire activities but to follow that and so um we just kind of shadowed what was happening so we would show up for the early morning um, firefighter briefing and they would talk about the weather and what their plans are so um you know everybody's sitting back there journaling people talking capturing the cool quotes that people are saying and then um we take off and go up to a spot and uh Kind of hang out and wait until all the fire crews got up and then they could start activities that we could go and shadow and watch but we so we kind of just bounce around staying kind of out of the way and then coming up and observing things and um i i guess because i've been in fire i don't think all that much of all the operational stuff like the planning and what everybody's doing i forget that that's something totally new and so it was really interesting how focused on the operations that everybody else was it was really interesting to me of like oh, i didn't okay. even think about that 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 they care about the morning briefing and they you know are curious of how we're making this happen so that was interesting um, and getting up there, I really, I can imagine a lot of new exercises now we do, but um, we did, everybody had to wear the um, full fire gear with the even the mm-hmm. fire shelter, which you guys don't have fire shelters, I believe in Australia, but here in the US, you have this fire shelter in case there's an emergency, get under this thing. Okay. Um, and even though, you know, we were not going to be deep in any situation, it was still just policy. So mm-hmm. it was interesting how bulky I could tell that people like are, you know, they're wearing their their Nomex pants and, and, and all these things. And, you know, so you're kind of trying to sit with the hard hat on and do your journaling. So that was interesting to have all of that aspect. And um, the smoke was a challenge for a lot of people because it would mm. shift and then it's in your face and your eyes are kind of bur- burning so it's kind of hard to do your drawing but um it was great um, yeah and I had planned to have um, so for policy we had to have one person that's qualified is what's called like a single resource like a, a kind of a crew leader type position but they have to meet qualifications in the fire system and they wanted uh, one of those for every five nature journalers. So I had brought two people qualified as that. So I was able to split our group as well. So there were a few times that some people had seen quite a bit of fire. They were a little bit tired of all the smoke. And so we had a group that kind of was down in this beautiful little meadow, looking up at the smoke on the hillside and kind of hanging out down there. And then our other group were up still shadowing the the fire activities and, and watching it and doing it. But yeah, I, um, I gave up on all the exercises of trying to like define things and we just kind of people watched and I was surprised and super grateful that the fire people we were with just... They were talking about all the stuff they're doing. So they were doing all the education, just kind of winging it. And we were um, had several of the Karuk and Yurok tribe members came and visited with us and brought a bunch of their basket weaving materials and a lot of um, things that they can create based on fire. So if you go in and fire, you have better acorns, you have better materials for baskets. And so they brought all these materials and showed it to us and talked to us about their tradition and their stories. And so um, wow, phenomenal. And it was several days uh, and uh, it was great. It was exciting. And um, I was, the fire crew people, we did a presentation at the end and had our journals there. And, mm. and they were thrilled and they really loved the quotes. <laughs> they were using them in Facebook of like, it's just, you know, a quick field sketch, but they were so excited, you know, taking photos and now have, using it as their profile pic. And it was, um it was great. It was really great.
0: That sounds phenomenal uh, and I'm wondering because as part of the power of nature journaling and especially sharing nature journals at the end of a session is that everyone has their own perspective and I'm wondering if you found like people were focusing on different things and things were coming out because you had different people viewing it from different angles.
1: Yes so we we try to have a variety of other people involved, not just experts. Originally, we were going to have it way more open, but I didn't get a whole lot of interest. So Jack, you know, dragged Marley and all these people up there that were experienced. <laughs> but, um, but we also, for a period of time, one of the Karuk, um, school teachers and several of her students came with us and shadowed us journaling and journaled with us. We had bought them little kits and stuff. And so they were doing their thing and it was great that, you know, Marley kind of came in there and coached them and worked with them a little bit. And, um, uh, Lori Wiggum had done, um, a little session on how to draw with a, with a stick. And she brought the inks and things. And so, um, Uh, different people kind of took on roles of teaching something and Jack took the kids out and did um, a bunch of fun games and so we had lots of different things from different aspects and we did have a couple of people two or three that did not consider themselves artists one of them um preferred to kind of write and um Beth was there and she did poetry and her kind of stuff. And, uh, we had a guy from Australia who was a fire meteorologist and he did some sketching, but he did like cool maps and things where he was coloring fire progression and things. So yeah, everybody kind of had a slightly different technique from watercolors to pencils Uh, but I think a lot of it was still just kind of flames and fire activity and operations. But we people learned a lot from each other by sharing those journals and talking about it at the end and kind of getting ideas of how they might do things differently.
0: That sounds so, so amazing. (laughs) So thinking about nature journaling in general as a useful tool for fire education and fire adaptation efforts, I love that you talk about it being a full-brained and full-bodied learning experience, and I'd love for you to articulate on this full-brained idea and full-bodied idea.
1: Yeah, well, I think that started coming to me after listening to a bunch of Jack's presentations, especially at some of the Nature Journal conferences where, um, He's talking about how using words and pictures and numbers are using different parts of your brain and these different exercises of, you know, zooming in and zooming out and all these different techniques are activating different parts of your brain. So it's it's, you know, more full brained if you're engaging in some of those activities. So I kind of started reading up and uh, looking in deeper to the stuff Jack's been talking about. And then I can't remember who in the nature journaling community, uh, a little bit, um, Kate Rudder did a session at this last one on full, like using your senses. Senses. Yes. And, yeah. And so I've been exploring that, especially from, a FIRE education awareness approach because so much of the issues are that we're very disconnected and we haven't been familiar with FIRE and and then we're bombarded with alerts or information and it's hard to respond. And so if we can then train ourselves ahead of time, these environmental cues and things to be aware of and use multiple senses, it's sort of like all these, I feel like these backup roots of information and that can kind of retrain and create this deeper, full-bodied kind of way of knowing That's that I think is really important. Uh, and I think it can bring in other people that have other limitations. So maybe somebody with visual limitations could be focusing on sounds or, mm. you know, touching some things, but ways to learn something that, and connecting it to fire and what that means to you. So I think there's this really interesting approach. And I, I have worked with this um, gentleman, uh, Scott Amick, who is in Butte County, and he is trained in this trauma-informed uh, yes, resilience I wanted to approach. Talk to talk you yeah. about- Mm. Yeah. And, and he, so, and he, so he's also introduced me to a bunch of this way of thinking and these exercises of, and, and all the, the brain nerve endings and all these things that are related to uh, using your senses. I had, I hadn't even thought about it of just like, oh my gosh. So not only your skin, you're touching things, but just by moving joints. That's a whole different circuitry using a whole different part of your brain. And so, Oh, if you're seeing it and then you're using, you're touching something with your skin and then you're moving your joints, you're like triggering all these different pathways. And so he had talked about that and he talked about for fire and trauma informed perspectives that there are a lot of environmental things that are kind of woven into our experiences and trauma. So smoke, Uh, If you've experienced a wildfire, uh, you've kind of imprinted smoke in your mind, and a lot of people can be triggered when they're smelling smoke and have this sort of panic, and seeing fire or just all these other things can overlay in a bad way, and you can, if you do deliberate exercises, you can kind of remap that from being a fear response to, to a calmer way of doing it. So I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's super powerful because I think we talked about how historically fire has been excluded from the landscape, which means that the majority of us are so disconnected from it that it does, it brings this huge amount of fear. And although we are living in fire adapted landscapes, fire is necessary for these places where we're living. It's It hasn't been there apart from when it's out of control. And so we don't have a lot of emotions attached to fire apart from these... Stressful fear responses. Yeah.
1: And so I think if you're trying to do education around fire, it's important to learn some of these trauma informed perspectives and the things that might trigger somebody and the kinds of exercises to help calmly go into things or different approaches to this information. Or if you do need to talk about something that might be hard, you know, how do you work through that? And so those are some of the workshops that I've been doing with him that we've partnered on to kind of bring people together and brainstorm what issues, but also what other approaches can you use?
0: Yeah. And I think nature journaling is, can be a really empowering part of that because, you know, wildfires can leave people feeling very vulnerable and feel like things are out of control. But if we are aware and alert and learning about the landscape with our senses that can bring us I would think a sense of empowerment like we know what's coming we we aren't just looking at the news or at apps to tell us when things are happening we can actually know this information ourselves through our lived experience. Mm -hmm, Exactly and I'm hoping that if more people
1: were to use nature journaling and gain an awareness of their fire environment, they would become more cautious in the activities that cause fires, too. So, yes. you know, they might be more aware that, oh, okay, you know, with these kinds of winds, with this type of vegetation now, this is very high risk. So maybe I won't go out and mow my yard at this point, or I'll do it first thing in the morning, or they could they'd have a a more of a sense of when it's appropriate to do certain things or their campfires of being able to watch the fire and know whoa this is um pretty risky i get it i'm not gonna do a campfire or i'll put it out so i feel like um we could really change a lot of things if we understand the why fire is reacting the way it is and and it's very particular to that place and that moment and so it's hard to teach at a broad scale It's something i think you kind of have to be at a place and know how to apply that information and so that's a lot of what i'm trying to figure out are these exercises of okay you know what can you do to kind of work your way up to become sensitive to this changing season which means a changing level of fire risk and hazard and what does that look like and what does that smell like And, um, yeah, so it's sort of a, you know, this ebb and flow of fire risk. It doesn't have to always be this tremendous level of fear, but there are periods of extreme risk. And then there's like a general growing seasonal trend to be, you know, this is the window of time where you should really be picking up your awareness game. So, yeah, so I've been, um, I was actually contracted by the Butte County Fire Safe Council in Northern California. They're the group where that the big campfire happened and where I'd grown up in that area. And they knew I'd been doing all this fire journaling. And so they wanted me to write a youth fire journaling guide. So I've been, um, it's taken me a lot longer than I thought it would. But um, so that's something I've been working on is kind of trying to think of how to, go through this without it just being about all the traditional fire stuff and or have to be at an actual fire. What can you slowly mm-hmm. work your way up to and the important aspects? So I actually start with the landscape scale and looking at patches and patterns. Partly, it seems like focusing just on fire or aspects can be very detailed, where if you can just step back for a moment and just... How can you see a landscape differently and not look at it and Mm -hmm. freak out that, oh my gosh, you know, that's a big scarred area or this is to not even personalize it, but how could you kind of look at it at a big scale and look to see all these different patterns, even in a, you know, completely forested area, you're going to see some interesting patterns and patches. And so how do you look at that and do that? Um, And yeah, so I kind of, try these different ways of looking at things. One is also looking at seasons and kind of successional stages. And what is that? How might you journal that? But what does it mean for fire? Knowing the buildup of vegetation and the the dryness. There's some aspects called energy release component that um, are really fascinating, but seem to resonate well on realizing that the more fuel and the drier it gets, the more fire energy, whereas the greener and the wetter, the more kind of your green energy. So it's kind of this tug of war, but how to track and and kind of journal that sort of stuff. So it's been fun to explore. And I'm a little more than halfway through, I hope, before the holidays to have that done.
0: That's amazing. And I'm thinking about the level of thinking, you know, you have to think like you say, on an ecosystem level, you're thinking about all these different ideas. Like you talk about the fire behavior triangle, fuels, and how it interacts with topography and weather. There's so many different things that you're thinking about at this scale. And it also involves a whole lot of metadata. I'm wondering about, I'm wondering, have you always been interested in data on this, on this big scale? <laughs> No, (laughs) I, I hated
1: math when I was young. And I actually, I remember I had, they like took me out of regular class and put me in like a special class for like the people really slow at math. Um, I don't, you know, I know people's, I've heard that brains evolve differently at different ages and mine Mm -hmm. did not, mine was not going to go there on any kind of metadata kind of stuff for a long time. So, um, I think once I started going to college and seeing math in different ways, I did better spatially than like calculus still probably not my thing. Um so no, um, I <laughs> was <interesting>. always more <laughs> I was more creative and actually like if I'm journaling on my own, just doing my own thing for fun, I tend to go I want to just kind of be artistic and creative Mm -hmm. like write poetry but i feel like to understand something that you can't necessarily see like fire unless you're looking Mm -hmm. at the actual fire happening but the fire environment there's a lot to know before fire's ever there and that's not always obvious and so you kind of need metadata to see and understand things or combine it with to know to realize oh this subtle little thing about like relative humidity. That's what I have the chapter I'm working on right now. You can't really see that. I mean, you kind of can, you can kind of feel it, but you don't pay attention to it. And knowing that there's a trigger for when there's a very high fire risk of, you know, depending on where you are, some places that are like in the South here in the U S that, you know, they have a very wet area and they're, you know maybe 60% relative humidity or you know might be a high risk for us in california and the western side it could be 30 or 15% relative humidity is is pretty extreme and that's like a threshold of like oh man you know a very high risk but how do you mm-hmm. observe that in nature and you kind of need metadata i think to train yourself to like because you, know, you can feel the difference in moisture in your skin. Does your hair get frizzy or is it flat? Are your lips chapped? Uh, what things are you seeing that have to do with relative humidity? You kind of you'd have to train yourself to recognize oof, this and you know this is feeling dry. I wonder if this is probably getting close to a, a the relative humidity I should be concerned yes. with. So you need I feel like you need the metadata first to train yourself on what to look for. Same thing for winds. Um, I have a section on kind of wind and weather and uh, for a lot of fires in the areas where I'm from, a 10 mile an hour starts to become kind of a threshold for where fire could really carry. And you know, the Beaufort scale is great that you're looking at stuff and you could be journaling it, but you don't have to know three mile an hour. Seven mile an hour. You don't need all those, but you should kind of have an idea of what that threshold of like ten mile mm. an hour. This is where there's a concern and the direction it's coming. Oftentimes, you'll have a drier wind that's coming from certain directions, and if you know the wind is different than normal, you can key into that and when you're likely to do yes. that. But you kind of need metadata again to know. I'm going to train myself, so that's where. I've, really, I've been pushing metadata more than I am naturally inclined to because a complicated, like we've just talked about, the kind of environmental systems way of seeing things, climate change. Mm. Um, you need some metadata to be able to kind of truly see some of these things that are more hidden.
0: Yeah, that is so interesting. And your pages, your Nature Journal pages, so beautifully... Uh, present all this information but in a way that's really accessible and I'm thinking about that there's power in taking data and turning it into something visual and you do this beautifully and so like I mean a graph turns data points into something that we can understand but you have lots of different ways of visually representing data on your page so that it can be more easily understood. And I wonder if you could talk about visually representing data. I know you do weather wheels and things like this. I'd love to hear some of the ways that you visually represent these things.
1: Yeah, I have. So I've been trying to think about how you personalize it to your own awareness. So Mm -hmm. that fire weather wheel, I came up with a color coding based on my perception of when it's hot or when it's warm or when it's cool. I think where you're from and how you sense temperatures, you know, you might change that color schemes, but I created that kind of grouping of between this and this temperature is, is pretty warm for me and or the area I'm from. And I color coded it differently on something that was to me that, that kind of red is a higher risk and kind of work your way down to a green or a blue. So I kind of thought about, um, colors that were meaningful to me. And then I also kind of thought about how much detail of the metadata, because I don't know that 73 degrees versus 82, you know, that it's specific means a whole lot for what I'm trying to do. It's a grouping of it's hot, it's warm. So, I try to think about my metadata in what is it I really want to come away with. And so, yeah, my weather wheel, it was kind of using the phenology concept and applying the critical fire weather of temperature, relative humidity and wind speed and direction. And so I was trying to use that core metadata and thinking about uh, what visually works for me. And, um, a lot of it's it's kind of evolved so i've experimented um and then just tracking that that's kind of a lot of work i think that it's something that's probably great to start with training yourself to connect with metadata Mm -hmm. and then you might move on to something different um so yeah and i was trying to use i have had access to Where I worked, we had our own meteorologist and fire expertise and lots of information. But I didn't want to use something only a government specialist could use. So I was just going to common website stuff, Mm. seeing, you know, experimenting with, you know, since it is just general groupings of temperature, I don't have to have exactly where that weather station is. It doesn't have to be right next to me. It could be a little different because I'm generalizing it. But I wanted to use the most common accessible data. So I was pulling from very public, easy to use sites and kind of experimenting with that. Um, I think I could do different variations. The one I really like is, a. it was a graph and it's actually kind of a climate fire weather graph where some of the websites I was going to you could look at that same day and know what was the historic average and the historic high and low for that day. And so sort of sandwiching your current weather in that and seeing, wow, you know, this day was the new highest high in in the historic, you know, record there. And, Mm. you know, is it a full trend? Uh, And kind of comparing it because I feel like in looking at some of the, extreme fire or just the climate change impacts just a hot day. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, there's lots of things that make us feel it's hot, but how is that in context of how things have adapted and evolved? And so if you're looking at where your weather is sitting in that historical context, you could kind of see our things going to be way more stressed and that maybe that gives you a cue to go out and do some observations of like up here we had In the Pacific Northwest, where I am right now, we had a day that was 115, which is unheard of in the Pacific Northwest.
0: I can't visualize what that is because I think in um, in uh, Celsius. Celsius.
1: Yeah, I'd have to. That'd be the math that I can't do in my head. I'd
0: have to. My listeners will know. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it was ridiculously hot—a temperature that you never get up here. And okay. I was worried about what would happen. And I went, I think in the in the late evening, it was still hot and looked and I could see leaves on trees completely drooping mm-hmm. and all like wilted and leaves flipped up in the willow trees instead of their bottoms kind of down and the tops up that were flipped sideways and upside down. And so they looked mm-hmm. ghostly white and I'm like, whoa that's trippy and it wasn't just like a few branches it was all of them in a big area and then you now slowly the conifers here a ton of them have red needles and they're scorched up and down along the roadsides or open fields where they were and on the southern side where you had more sun and so but there might be those are kind of obvious, but that's the kind of weather that you might go, whoa, that was really cold or really hot compared to normal. I'm going to go out and look around and if and see, you know, what might be different and comparing it. Um, so that's kind of, I think, an interesting way to look at things. I also end up on fun rabbit trails like I was <laughs> just starting to notice. I was doing that climate weather graph and I just started to notice bees and butterflies, just a few. It was like coming out of winter, and I thought, "Oh, you know, they're just there's only a few." I hadn't even thought about bees not being out all year round, or I just didn't even think about them if I don't see them. I wonder if there's a trigger, like a temperature threshold, that awakens them. Um, And so I started doing all this research on bees and butterflies, and found all this really cool stuff on you know what's what temperature they need to fly. you know, what's the best temperature range when they might die, this whole like insect thermometer kind of thing. So, um, but I wouldn't have thought about any of that if I hadn't kind of been always thinking the weather context and how far in or out of the range you are.
0: Yeah, that that is so interesting. And that for example, that day where the leaves were in a different position because you hadn't really experienced temperatures that hot, these things can be informing us about evacuation plans as well, right? Like it, mm-hmm. for those of us living in uh, very fire-prone environments, it's really important to have a plan. Here I live in a fire-prone area and my family and I had to have a sit-down together and and have a real plan like what? Do, when will we – Try and protect the house. When will we just pack up and leave? What are we going to do? All, all this stuff about mm-hmm. just having a plan so that you're safe when, if and when this happens. And those these observations can be re- really important for informing like evacuation plans. I imagine.
1: Yes, I so I put on a little workshop for a, a fire adapted communities group up here in Washington state. And, um, it was approach how to use nature journaling tools and approaches for your evacuation planning, which Mm. was really fun. And I wasn't sure how it would go over, but it really kind of uh, inspired people to think about it. Because a lot of people just follow a template or just kind of look at a map or they just figure, I'm just going to go that way. But if you try to nature journal your route, and you walk through very deliberately, you know, what do you notice? And so if you're walking or driving, or I kind of broke it up into like a zone of, if you had to walk, you know, what direction would Mm. you go? And actually walk it and look at, and what do you see? If it's gonna be really smoky or things are happening, maybe you won't see a lot of the road signs. What's a good thing for you to see? And um, ask these different questions and kind of emotionally, walk through that scenario of, I notice, I wonder, um, it reminds me of, um, I'd have to go back through to remember exactly how I did it, but, and then mm-hmm. they had to draw, like draw their own map and draw in things they saw and follow through the questions. Like you would be journaling your evacuation route before you evacuate, um, was very, uh, I was surprised and some people were kind of overwhelmed because they had been through evacuations. so now i know that um if they weren't fire professionals you know they they probably would have had trouble with that but um but they were still feeling stress even though they're fire professionals on going through it but it was super interesting
0: Mm, that is so interesting i love how in your work you talk about nature journaling before fire, during fire, and after fire. And I wonder if you could explain a little about what kind of information we might capture in our journals during each of these different distinct stages. Mm
1: -hmm. So before fire, I think think there's a ton there. That's where I would want people to emphasize the most because it's that subtle when there's a fire hazard and when it's not as much of a fire hazard and how to see that. So I think looking at seasonal changes, but thinking about how dry and moist things are. And that's something that uh, you you can notice the difference just now. Like here, we have fall leaves on the ground. And when it's really dry out, when the relative humidity is really low, um, the leaves crunch under my feet but those same dead leaves early in the morning when the humidity's high are like little plastic leather things that just kind of oh, wow. and there's a very different fire risk to how that is dry and so if you train yourself to be noticing and a lot of the indigenous burners that are cultural burners and the people that do a lot of prescribed burning they'll go and they'll you know grab a handful of leaves or some grass pine needles and hold them squish them in their hands and if they break and crumple it means it's you know going to be ignitable they're going to be able to do their burn mm. if they bend it's it's not going to be a good burn and so learning how to journal that those seasonal dryness elements and moisture and wind are the things that i would be focusing on beforehand um and you could also be looking at that vegetation continuity and how it's carried sort of if you think of it the way water flows or a channel it has to have a fuel the vegetation and so where are the bare areas of the obstacles and where can it flow how does it move from the ground to a tree um, those are things that would be good to know before a fire happens so you can kind of think about well maybe i'll trim that over there or
0: yes
1: kind of do some prevention mitigation work um during a fire if you can be fortunate enough to do like a prescribed burn or a cultural burn or even I think you could do like a burn pile or a campfire I think it's fun to revisit the combustion process and what that looks like that mm. as a fire before it starts before it ignites and becomes a flame it it's heating up and it starts to steam out and so it looks a little bit like white smoke because this kind of steam coming up and then it'll ignite and you know seeing it go through that process and um the different colored flames a flame is can tell you about the temperature and kind of journaling noticing oh is it lighter at the bottom and darker at the top and why is that and asking those questions and looking at um that combustion process. So I think looking at that kind of close-up flames and there's a lot I would do for um at a prescribed fire or area where you could be out there looking at it closer, <clears throat> but for I guess most people I think that you can journal, I think it's great to journal the information you're seeing out there because it's easy to get overwhelmed but if you kind of look at it is just information like you would journal like these news stories are saying this Mm. and there's these pictures and these people are saying this and capturing that and thinking about how that's influencing how you're feeling and what you're thinking and um, maybe looking at the metadata and comparing that. I like to also, uh, most fires, especially if they're bigger, are going to give you the daily, it's usually twice daily, but the media kind of puts out daily, um, acres burned, and all you'd have all the weather. So you could be looking at, whoa, you know, if I'm tracking temperature, wind, and relative humidity and the fire grew this much in a particular day does that match up with the weather can i kind of mm. see that but you know kind of investigating the the weather the information um where is it coming from i think there are real interesting visual ways to capture that i thought it would be really cool if you're trying to like draw or creatively show the smoke that you're looking at um, it would be fun to snip out um, words from newspaper articles or different things and use that black and white to create like a collage of the smoke but with things that are meaningful to you like these words or these mm. things um, a ton of different stuff for smoke I think that um, your sky uh I really want to look at that more for air quality and smoke because there's a bunch of really cool information and some guides out there that can tell you based on how far you can see is going to tell you when it's like a hazard to your health. So rather than waiting for that alert of like stay inside, I think most of us see smoke and know, but I think oftentimes we're more panicked and we think it's worse than it is. And so, but knowing where those thresholds are. And so if you have your little um view shed and your skyscape veto and things and kind of how far can you see on the land um, and up in the sky and kind of looking at those um how much you can see and the color variation uh, would be very fun to journal and learn and i think that would help people maybe feel more comfortable in an area where they need to do a lot of prescribed burning and things if you could tell the difference of okay that smoke is really dark. That's probably, that could be a building burning, but this other smoke is kind of white. Uh, that's usually an indication they're starting to put water on it or it's starting to cool at the end of it or mm. the, you know, it's it's a milder fire. Being able to look at those things and journal those things from a distance, I think are really, um, really valuable. And then let's see, post-fire. After the fire... Um, I think there's both like an emotional aspect of things you can journal again, yes. you could be taking all the information and kind of more like your diary journal kind of thing of, of what happened, how you felt thinking about it. Um, I had gone through training um, for fire investigations. And part of that is when you're out, you can identify how the fire moved on the landscape by based on these different indicators of knowing that, okay, that, you know, the ash is kind of white here and dark here. And so the fire was going this direction. And um, based on the angle on the tree, you know, it was moving this direction and all these little cool little indicators. So I think that it could be fun to follow those uh, fire pattern indicators and have an idea of what happened there? And very particular of, you know, all these interesting things to tell the story and compare that to um, other information you may have had and see how, what really happened versus what you heard happen. What is that um, journaling? And I think what Robin and others have been doing, that eco-reportage of change over time would be really important. I think that I wish there was more citizen science. There's growing efforts, but if we're out there and seeing a lot of places that um, the scientists or the practitioners, the managers can't always get out to see, if we're tracking stuff and could share mm. that, the just like I was mentioning with the the here on that temperature and the dry branches. If a fire came through here, if I were to go and look, I, you know, might be able to see that, oh, yep, those areas that got scorched from heat, um, it the fire killed the tree, where these other areas didn't. And these trees that didn't get any scorch, you know, were only a little bit further down in a drainage. So maybe, you know, we'll work to protect this area and this slope, but maybe we'll remove some of these kinds of trees in this area so it'll be less of a fire hazard. I think there's a lot we can observe and share that can help with planning for the future. So um, not only like just mitigating risk by doing fuel management work, but after a fire of these little microclimate changes of if you're paying attention, dear metadata, if it's this slope, this much of a slope, you know, it's, this soil type, this kind of weather, and you might see very subtle things coming back differently. And what a great resource to be able to share that for other areas that might be able to use that on on planning for recovery.
0: Yeah, all this is so interesting and so empowering. I feel like, well, we live in these places. Fire is part of the landscape, for better or for worse. There's no possible way to remove the fire, you know, historically – there was active attempts to completely remove fire from the landscape and it just doesn't work. It causes disaster. We need to adapt and manage the best possible way. And all these tools that you're talking about, they bring in, I I love the way you talk about bringing in fire as part of your sense of place, because fire is part of these landscapes and pretending it doesn't exist is not useful <laughs> but knowing how to integrate it into our lives be safe from it and also bring in different emotions you know fear is one emotion but it there's also curiosity there's also wonderment there's also interest and and all these other things we can experience with fire and i love the way your work is opening people up to this
1: thank you i'm i'm trying it's been a process of exploring it for myself. So I kind of feel like the blind leading the blind as in, I'm not sure if this will work or if this is doing it, but I'm gonna try it and I'm gonna dig in. And I've been told there's like too much metadata Um, So, you know, part of me is like, oh, okay, let me you know think of new approaches. And other times I just hope, well, if you try some metadata, you might like it.
0: (laughs) Well, it worked for you by the sound of (laughs) it.
1: Yeah, it's like, oh man, I don't, I'm not a math person. I'm not a, but it's fascinating the insight it can bring to you. I just feel like, oh, you know, it just looks, yeah, maybe it isn't as pretty of a picture and it might seem dull, but oh my gosh what it can tell you if you follow through with it if you Mm. i don't know that it always tells you something like if you just throw the weather on your one journal page but if you're were to track like through over a period of time and then you created a little graph and and then thought about your observations you might have all Mm. these new questions like oh wow you know this was sort of different like i mentioned like the climate versus your current temperature or little subtle things that, you know, you, you didn't even quite maybe thought there was something going on there, but with metadata, you can kind of dig in a little bit and find these secret worlds of information.
0: I love that. I love that you're, you're talking about being aware today and doing things in our journal today when, when you might not be in crisis, you might not have a wildfire raging on your doorstep, or maybe you do in some places, unfortunately. But um, there are things we can do today before a fire to get prepared, to get aware, to get in tune, really, with what's around us. And I think that's a really powerful tool.
1: Yeah, yep. I I hope more people will uh, be willing to approach it and try it. And I hope maybe more people will be willing to take on um, little pilot journaling prescribed fire events and different opportunities um, to see and talk about fire. So, yeah, I I hope it spreads. Not like, well, kind of like wildfire, but (laughs) yes and no.
0: (laughs) Miriam, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to learn from you and hear and think more about this stuff.
1: Well, thank you, Bethann. That's been great.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation with miriam i loved how she was so open about not being a data person at first but that her desire to uncover the important patterns in her environment has made data collection and communication an important part of her nature journals and her work i encourage you to click the links in the show notes and explore miriam's website and social media Her pages are inspirational and really show a range of different ways that we can communicate data beautifully and effectively. I'd like to also point you to a podcast which is called Good Fire. And Good Fire is a podcast all about how Indigenous peoples around the world have had this incredible relationship with fire and how they use fire as a tool for ecological health and as part of the culture. When fire is used during a cultural burn, the level of heat is very low. It's a cool fire and the height of the fire is very low as well. And Indigenous peoples have an intricate knowledge of how to use fire to bring up biodiversity, to encourage the health of an ecosystem. The hosts of Good Fire podcast speak with Indigenous peoples around the world, including Canada, USA, Australia, Brazil, and I encourage you to click on the links in the show notes to learn more. I wonder about you. Do you live in a fire-prone area? Have you thought about using your nature journal as a tool to understand the patterns of fire around you? This is a big and important issue that we're all going to have to think about more in the future. I've been inspired by this conversation with Miriam to start investigating these things in my environment. If you'd like to contribute your experiences with fire and nature journaling, You can leave a comment under the post for this podcast episode on my website. I'd really love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.